All right. Uh, well, welcome everyone. Welcome to another Cyberitaville podcast. Thank you much for joining us today. We are uh, going to cover uh, one of the topics that probably isn't the most sexy sort of ransomware hackery type thing out there. Uh, we're going to talk about compliance um, and kind of hit it from a few different angles. So this is actually going to be part of a chapter of a book that we're uh, writing called the CISO book. Well, for lack of a better title right now. And um, this particular chapter, we're just calling compliance strategies. So it may change. We'll see, you know, kind of what feels right when that time comes. So, uh, but I'm a little bit scratchy today, so I'm going to be uh, lathering my throat. And uh, on that topic, I did want to share with you, one of my favorite drinks is tequila. One of my favorite tequilas, which I was introduced to a couple of years ago, is Sincoro. And uh, it's a really, really good tequila. It comes in this cool, fancy bottle. And if you do some Googling, you'll kind of find out that there's a whole reason why it's got this uh, pentagon-shaped top, the bottle. It's pretty fancy. It's, it's one of the more pricey tequilas I get. Um, and I get a few different kinds because I like to, to check it out. But this one here is pretty smooth. I might tend to drink the Reposados and Añejos. I like the darker ones. I don't really like the Blancos at all. Uh, but that's that's one of my go-tos these days. So I'd share that with you for any of the tequila lovers out there. Anyway, all right, but let's talk about compliance. There's nothing to do with that. Um, and this is part of what we're calling the day in the life of a CISO. So we're going to do a series where we're going to try to bring you kind of practical uh, tools, techniques, methods, even just approaches that you can use in your life as a security manager, leader, uh, or even a CISO. So hopefully this is helpful. Uh, we definitely love your feedback. So, you know, if this is a bunch of crap, let us know. <laughs> hopefully put up better crap next time. Um, or if you liked it, or if there were things that, missing, that were missing, you know, let us know, and then we can improve on it. And then the last thing I'll say is um, there's no cost. We don't market uh, any products to you while you're paying attention to this podcast. Um, so the only thing we ask of you is if you liked it, if you found it in any way, value to you. It might be value to somebody else. Please share. All right. So live, well, almost live from Satellite Beach, Florida. Well, let's get into this. So the topic today is compliance. And I think one of the more interesting topics I'd like to start with is just, you know, what, what is compliance? Is compliance security? Is security compliance? And this is something that's come up a, a lot of times over the years as I've talked to different organizations Especially when we get into things like how do you organize security? What's security, the, the program, the team of people? What is, uh, what is it comprised of? What are the things that security should be doing? And it's not uncommon that compliance falls under the security team. Um, you, you might find me advocating that it should live somewhere else, maybe under legal, maybe under finance. Kind of the day-to-day -day operations of um, compliance management. Uh, or whatnot, we can talk about that maybe another time. But let's talk about, you know, first of all, is compliance security? Why do we even have compliance? And I'll, I'll kind of jump in and, and at least try to put some terms on it. We have compliance because without compliance, we would have uh, MVP. So minimal viable product is basically, you, you can look at it as just a state of whether it's a program or what a, what a company does or an actual product. Um, it's whatever the market, you know, requires of that company. 
And particularly today, uh, why, why don't companies or consumers or whatnot require more, require security? And that's a really good question. You know, if you asked me a while ago, if compliance maybe was more needed before than now, I'd probably think that that was the case, that maybe at this stage of the game, there's so much awareness around security. There's so much cost associated with breaches and ransomware and whatnot. But the, the reality is we still aren't at a place where if we sort of took away the, the, the compliance concept or the, the compliance frameworks out there, that, that things would be done sufficiently well. And I think some of that is basically that the, the world we live in, the landscape of technology and the products in there and services in there and how these things are just hyper-connected, it's all so darn complex that you know many organizations that are focused on providing products or bringing services and products to the market or whatever it is, whatever it is that they're doing, they just would never make that a priority, not enough. And that's because us, the consumer or the organizations that use those services, we, we don't vote with our feet. We don't not buy from those companies. Let's use Target as an example. Uh, my card was one of those affected by the Target breach. Uh, I ended up getting a new one. There weren't any uh, identity fraud issues with that particular loss for my part. I, hell, I didn't even know that it was lost and then I got a new card. And uh, and probably, you know, if you look in some of the databases, you'll find it in there. But, you know, there was no immediate effect. On top of that, if you look at Target, there was a dip in their, in their uh, stock price after the big Target breach. And sure enough, you know, they fixed a bunch of things and went back in. So um, the, the reality is, you know, we as consumers haven't, haven't penalized Target for their lack of compliance. And I think that's pretty much the case. We don't have a lot of attention span, if you will, for remembering uh, companies that hurt us. Maybe you uh, have some particular company that you won't do business with anymore, whether as a personal you know, consumer um, or even in your business uh, because of something that happened in the past. Years and years and years ago, I vowed never to buy IBM before I got, I felt like I was cheated with this crappy computer I bought uh, when I was in college and so on and so forth. But lo and behold, you know, I ended up buying several large <laughs> IBM systems, uh, you know, later for one of the companies I worked for. So, so much for that. Uh, and maybe that's just me, but I think in general, the consumer out there, the, the buyer of companies that works for some uh, bigger corporation, just, you know, it's, it's too much to keep track of. So, so without compliance, basically we, in many cases, don't have much security at all. Um, we see this kind of in other industries as well, that when there aren't regulations and regulation oversight, that, you know, bad things happen. When the industry or company is supposed to regulate itself, you know, just doesn't do so very well. So, so the question then is, is compliance security? And that's one of the things I want to touch on today. Uh, the, the name of this podcast uh, or, and chapter in the, in the book is really compliance strategies. So meaning, how do you deal with compliance? How do you meet uh, your compliance obligations and so on and so forth? So let's dig a little bit into, you know, is compliance security? Uh, and I'm talking about security compliance. So think about uh, payment card, uh, financial services, uh, healthcare with HIPAA. Uh, the part that deals with security. So things that require firewalls and access control lists and policies and all that sort of stuff. Everything that you typically see in any of those frameworks, and I'll just share, I've worked with probably 80% of the different frameworks out there or, or regulations from 
PCI to energy regulations to various uh, DOD uh, federal regulations, uh, financial, you know, there isn't very much that I haven't had to deal with over the years. And lo and behold, they, they aren't super different. Like they're all kind of requiring a lot of the same things. There are varying degrees of detail around those uh, requirements. And, and not everything is regulation, right? PCI DSS is not a regulation. It's a standard imposed by the card brands themselves. So Visa, American Express, et cetera. Um, but you know, HIPAA is a federal regulation. There are others as well. And then you even have the state uh, level regulation typically as well. So in and of themselves, if you were to kind of take the, uh, the name off any uh, typical compliance requirement or a regulation, uh, you could look at that as a very comprehensive you know, set of uh, standards and requirements for a security program. And they vary. Uh, some align with different frameworks and frameworks typically align with all these different uh, compliance regulations and standards that you might have to deal with. So is compliance security? Well, that's where it gets kind of tricky. Um, compliance, unfortunately, tends to turn into a little bit of a check in the box exercise. And this is in part not because the standards and uh, compliance regulations are poorly written. Uh, there, typically, there are a bunch of smart people, uh, security practitioners like myself, and probably the people you know listening to this podcast have put their brains together, heads together, um, and developed those frameworks. You know that that's what they're based on. Working groups, whatever, came up with those things. I participated in the HIPAA security rule back in the day, so we all kind of came up with these frameworks. So it's not really the frameworks, but it's, it's how they get evaluated and how, how many teeth, if you will, how strong the, the enforcement of those uh, standards and regulations are. And then also um, who does that enforcement? Uh, and, and that's one of those topics that we'll talk, uh, talk about today. So before we get into that, I wanna sort of flip this around and say is security compliance. And both of those is compliance security, security compliance kind of have a yes and a no answer. If you take compliance, a compliance framework that you're obligated to, to live by, and you really, you know, kind of go to work on that and do everything it sort of says and do it with good intentions and comprehensively and so on and so forth, you're going to probably have very good security, almost regardless of which framework you're talking about. The converse is also true. If you uh, approach, if you get, you know, five different, uh, 10 different, you know, security practitioners together and, and they collectively come up with a uh, security management program, the tools, the techniques, the processes and everything like that. And, and you put that together, probably that organization, that, that capability that they build will meet any compliance requirement. So, so you can sort of say good security will meet any compliance objective. And that's kind of often what I talk to organizations about is if we, if we build a, a security program uh, that is meaningful, that you know, adheres to a lot of best practice or industry practice, and that we think about it you know, just uh, practically, then a lot of the compliance that we might have imposed on us will also be relatively easy, easy to meet, uh, maybe even very, very easy. Um, but it's the other side. It's really when compliance is, is almost the only driver for your security program that we run into challenges. And this is another aspect of this before we kind of dive in a little bit more. Um, without compliance, many organizations wouldn't have much security. So for a lot of organizations where they are today is, is in large part driven by compliance. 
we, we do see compared to maybe 10, 15 years ago, we do see that um, management uh, board of directors and whatnot will ask about uh, various things, you know, are we protected against ransomware? You know, what's the risk of a data breach, you know, and so on and so forth. So they care more than they did a while ago, but it isn't necessarily uh, the biggest driver. Compliance is often uh, a key component of what drives your program. Uh, we're working with an organization right now whose security program advances because they are uh, needing to, to meet uh, requirements to do business with the Department of Defense. Um, and that, you know, we had this uh, CMMC framework come out that then was sort of rolled back or slowed down, I guess. And now it's really about the NIST 800 uh, dash 171 framework that is kind of what drives it all. But if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't be doing a lot of this stuff. They would probably kind of be concerned about ransomware, you know, and a few things like that, phishing, wire fraud, but that might be all that we did. Um, so this drives that. Oh yeah. And one more thing I'll talk about on that thing is, you know, if your organization is sort of driven by compliance, um, we like to, to say that you're kind of just one notch up on that maturity continuum. So if you think of of cybersecurity maturity or security management maturity. When you have no program, when you have nothing, when everything is entirely reactive, you're kind of at the level one. When compliance is driving your security, you're pretty much at sort of a level two. Beyond that, you're now proactive and managed and whatnot. And finally, you know, you're forward-looking, business-aligned and agile. That's really what we are pushing our clients to get to is to you know, really try to understand the DNA of the organization and align security to the, the risk aptitude, uh, the bankroll, if you will, also of that organization so that it's an organism, if you will. Um, anyway, so to dive into some of the compliance strategy pieces, uh, here are some of the things that, that I often work with, with companies on. Uh, for example, uh, if, you're, if you're relatively kind of new, you're dealing with a program, it's sort of a mishmash of things. You've got some policies, you've got this, you got that. And now you have to tackle this thing called uh, compliance. It's, it's kind of crazy, but this, the number of companies out there that are taking credit cards, but don't have a PCI compliance program is, is kind of staggering. So as odd as it might sound that in 2022, there are companies starting on this journey, um, it's, it's more frequent than you would believe. But but if you're sort of starting on this journey, or particularly if you've gotten some sort of notice or letter that uh, you got to get compliant or else, uh, one of the most important things is really to start laying out a plan, making a plan in, in on the government side, we typically call that a plan of actions and milestones. But for all intents and purposes, it's just a plan that lays out, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we think we'll be done with it all by such and such a date. You might have gotten hit by an auditor that came in and, and did a, an audit and won't attest to that audit or won't attest to compliance, and, and now you're struggling. So, so what do you do? Uh, you got this challenge in front of you, and, and here's where we got to be smart and sort of leverage a few things. So a couple of concepts I'm going to bring up here is one, um, there's nothing black and white in this stuff, which means that we have the opportunity, the flexibility, if you will, to interpret uh, the requirements, the specifications with a lot of flexibility, with a lot of latitude, if you will. And um, now this comes with some risk. Um, if we are a little bit too flexible on how we interpret uh, the requirements and whether or not we've met them, particularly if we're allowed to attest ourselves to compliance, meaning no third party, no auditor comes in and looks at you, 
then by bending those rules or stretching kind of the intent, uh, the specification, if you will, you run the risk of building up some, um, let's call it compliance debt that, you know, at some point in time might come in and bite you. So you get away with it for two or three years. And then eventually what you sort of said was a yes, we're meeting this. Maybe you're not really meeting it. And, uh, and that can become a problem. But that is part of a strategy. And that's to basically say, we're going to broadly understand a particular requirement. So you could call it, you know, shenanigans or sleight of hand or parlor tricks, but putting a stick in the ground and saying, hey, we're going to say that this meets this particular requirement and, and be done with that in the short term allows you to sort of move on to the next item. Um, if, you, if you approach uh, a, an entire compliance framework that way, uh, it might give you some breathing room, you know, to then go back and fix certain parts. And this is where that plan does kind of become important is, is the plan shouldn't really end with, hey, I managed to check all the boxes, but uh, it really needs to be, hey, we're going to come back and we're going to improve those policies. We're going to shore up those access control lists. Well, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So uh, in the payment card industry data security standard, one of the requirements is that you know, all access into the environment that we tend to call uh, the cardholder data environment or CD needs to be protected with multi-factor authentication. So 2FA or any sort of thing where it's more than just the password. Now, this is a, this is a requirement that can be interpreted uh, a little bit broadly, and some of it has to do with how good your auditor is. But if we have MFA to the environment, that's often something that's used to sort of check that box. In fact, we see it quite a bit today outside of pure regulations in insurance requirements. So today, if you're getting cyber insurance, one of the things they're always asking about is, do you have MFA? Well, I do. And I get it on this little thing over here. They don't necessarily look any closer than that. So if you can check the box, I've got MFA, maybe it doesn't protect everything or doesn't you know, provide access to all uh, gates uh, into and out of the environment or into the environment you know, um, I, I can still check the box. They don't typically come in and inspect that. So it's, it's sort of an honor system. But over on the, over on the compliance side, um, basically showing that you have multi-factor authentication into the environment might be sufficient. Now, a strong auditor, someone that kind of understands um, the way that you can sort of uh, interpret um, the requirement or you know, let's say um, kind of obfuscate the intent of that particular specification, they might look much closer and see that, yes, but, you know, while you have MFA to your perimeter, once you get inside the perimeter, you're still not inside the CDE. The CDE, the, the cardholder data environment, is a smaller environment within your network. And, and that's really where you're going to have that control. But this is an example of where you can kind of go along with this, um, bending the rules, if you will, is it dishonest? I don't think so. I think it's just kind of interpreting the, the rules very broadly. Uh, and then you get that check uh, and you can attest, you know, uh, or your, your supervisor or whoever's actually doing the attestation, they can attest to that. Now, one of the things that's important is not to forget that and make sure that you go back and have a project in place to uh, fix that part and say, all right, we're going we're gonna to move that multi-factor authentication perimeter, if you will, to all types of access into that environment. So not just into the bigger environment, but really into the, the cardholder data environment. 
And this is really true for most types of um, regulations that require MFA or, or those kinds of things is they, they aren't, the frameworks themselves aren't specific enough or don't go to the level of detail where you don't, you know, don't have this wiggle room. Most auditors out there that might be coming to look at you don't have the, the requisite knowledge or it's easy enough to provide evidence, if you will, documentation, so on and so forth, that you know, they can check their box. They can sort of say that we did our due diligence. Now, where this can come and bite you, and this is why I talk about don't forget about this, is if you have a breach, uh, if you're a cardholder or you're, you know, you're a merchant, you're taking cards and you have a breach, it doesn't matter what you put on this. It doesn't matter what the auditor you know, put in their report and, and based uh, their opinion on you're still reliable for that. So it doesn't take away the culpability, if you will, but it does allow you to sort of have some breathing room. Again, you know and understand that that risk still remains there. So that's an example of what I call a strategy um, for, for kind of managing uh, compliance. And again, you know, coming up with, with a, an approach to essentially get some, some breathing room. Um, the other option is to, rather than do that, you basically acknowledge that you've got a problem and you come up with a plan to address that particular issue with a, you know, a project, uh, let's say, to extend that authentication mechanism to the, the perimeter of the, the, the scoped environment, the CD, if you will. And, and that'll you know, get you maybe to really where you want to be. But typically in, in the compliance management space, there's a lot of stuff to do. Um, all right. So that's an example of, uh, of a strategy there. Um, the other thing is to, to carve up compliance and kind of look at what can you do and, and what can you divide and conquer? Um, what can you turn over to other teams as well? So a lot of this often find, falls on uh, the shoulders of the security team. But if you, if you step back for a second and sort of look at who is responsible for a particular you know, element of compliance, um, you know, you can potentially take out 30 to 50% of the workload by, by identifying those people in the organization that truly are responsible for that capability or process or whatever it is, you know, call it an administrative control or a technical control. So the IT organization, which you may be a part of, may be, uh, you know, responsible. Things like, you know, endpoint security, um, Teams doing, let's say, store technology and remote management, you know, they have responsibilities. Training is a big component, typically, of any compliance program. You might have a learning management system, an LMS. On the HR side, maybe they manage the training side. Now, I'm going to do a podcast in a little bit about security awareness and security culture. And that's one that has always been a little bit of a pet peeve or a stickler for me that I, I don't really like when HR has uh, security awareness training because I think they just sort of turn it over to whatever module uh, of security awareness is in their learning management system. And um, they're happy to do that once a year along with you know, whatever other workforce training is necessary. And, and as we know, you know, once a year type training just doesn't do it. Um, so I don't really like to get that, give that one away, but it depends on where you are, what you have on your plate. It might be that there's a time to, to leverage uh, the HR team, for example, for that. You might also have someone in internal audit that you can turn over some of the management side to. If you're kind of an adaptive, smart, aligned CISO, 
you do not kind of hoard everything on your team. You really try to figure out who are your partners in the organization. And some of the key partners are things like internal audit, legal. Legal can help you get things into contracts, deal with third-party risk, for example. Um, and that's another thing that comes up these days and on the compliance side anyway. So, so there you have another uh, go-to group. Uh, finance is usually good as well. And then HR. And then, of course, you get into things like application security and whatnot. And there are, there are definitely um, uh, individuals that you can rely on to sort of be your sponsors or your champions, if you will, in those organizations. Uh, in fact, most security practitioners, if they're kind of in their ivory security tower, trying to tell developers how to be secure, they're not going to be super successful uh, unless you've got a very big stick. So your best option there is really to find uh, people over there to be friends with that might be interested in security and you know want to want to help you and and are interested in the topic and and want to kind of evangelize security within the development team. So dividing and conquer is maybe another strategy that we can add to the list here. Um, so kind of going through a few things. One is you know um, you could almost sort of approach it with. Uh, <laughs> Option A, sleight of hand parlor trick. You know, I'm just going to figure out how to bend the rules or restate, repurpose something and say, hey, this, this meets the, uh, gets me the check in the box. You can do kind of a minimum viable product or minimal uh, approach uh, that gets you uh, down the road and then you're asking for dollars or you come up with a plan of action and milestones to put a remediation plan in place in the next six months, 12 months. That's one. The other thing is dividing and conquering. So taking some of that workload and, and divvying it out uh, and, and finding someone else that can own it. Um, and also really finding a team to collaborate on it as well. The other thing is leveraging external vendors, leveraging the, the auditors. So what I was talking about is if you have an auditor that, um, that comes in and uh, audits you on a yearly basis, you can work with them and, and basically get ahead of kind of those crazy audit periods, reaching out early and, and sort of think about, think about it from their perspective. They typically have multiple companies that they're managing all at the same time. Uh, they're going to those organizations one by one and saying, hey, we need all these documents, we need all that, and so on and so forth. And then they're on to the next thing. They're not keeping you front and center typically for a while. So there's a process to this. If you can get ahead of that process, work with that auditor, reach out, get to know them, then it makes your life easier, gives you some more time to kind of meet that obligation. Or they might even uh, allow you to take that plan of action and milestones and shuffle a few things around based on what you know they're going to be asking for and looking for. So that's one thing, uh, one approach there. Let's see, what else? What haven't we talked about? I think that's kind of it. Maybe we'll come back with some other tips uh, uh, beyond that in terms of sort of practical approaches to compliance. And then I think the last thing I want to say is, again, going back to this uh, concept of a continuum, where on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, you are naive and nascent, uh, you know, program or whatnot, and you're moving, moving the needle towards a state of maturity. Not every organization is going to be super business aligned or whatever. Industries kind of have standards that they follow um, or fall into, I should say. And so... If you're in manufacturing, you're, you're not going to be on the leading edge of, of pretty much anything technology unless you're in you know, a particularly uh, technology intensive industry. Um, and so, so don't expect that, but, but think about 
your compliance program is really just a stepping stone to where you move that program to much more business aligned, you know, forward looking uh, type program. At least you want to get to the point where you're not reacting, you're not doing things because this framework is is doing at it. And the more you can get there, the more the easier compliance becomes. Um, you can also think of compliance as there's there's work that has to be done up front. And once you've done that, once you've got all your policies and procedures, you know, properly in place and all the little, you know, nitpicky stuff that might come up in an audit, once you fix those things, you know, you have less and less of those in the subsequent audits. And then you can shift your focus to some of the problem areas. You know, when you start out on this journey, it might be difficult to even define the scope and certainly rein it in. But over the course of two or three years, you might have managed to narrow the scope kind of determine what is within the environment that you're trying to protect according to these regulations and what's without. That brings up kind of an interesting topic, actually. If you have, uh, like the in the PCI world, we call uh, the in-scope environment, the cardholder data environment. So what does that mean? It means that you, within your network, essentially have at least two different networks or two different environments, uh, security zones in some parlance, if you will. You typically have more than that. You, you might have a DMZ. Uh, you might have your internal network uh, divided into where users live and where applications live. If you're in the cloud, that's also typically a separate environment. Hopefully that's not uh, as flat as, as your legacy environment. But once you have that, that cardholder data environment or some other compliance-based environment, one of the questions that you might find yourself thinking about is whether or not you should apply the same controls to all environments or to both environments if you just have two. So uh, using, again, PCI as an example, and I, and I use that because it tends to have some of the most stringent controls. So it kind of is the, the high bar, if you will, the high mark. Uh, if you look at all the requirements you have for PCI, and I'll pick on one, uh, what we call file integrity monitoring, or what we often just call FIM. File integrity monitoring is a, is a technology uh, intense or, or complex process. It has process on top of it. Uh, you can get tools that do it for you, but it tends to be complex and, and it's difficult to implement. And it's one of the most problematic pieces of particularly PCI. And so if you're going to apply one standard to your entire environment, that's one of those things that you're, you're going to hate yourself for. So do you end up with two different sets of controls? one for the compliance-oriented environment and one for kind of the rest of your IT organization, that gets a little bit tricky. Uh, it's, it's hard to have two sets of policies and two sets of types of controls and monitoring at this level there and that level there. But depending on the complexity and environment, that may be something that you think about and, or even have to go down. You know, if FIM is the only thing, that's not necessarily a problem just to say that, hey, this tool which uh, addresses this particular process that meets a certain compliance objective is, you know, only over here. That, that one's kind of easy, but there are many other things that might take you down that path of, do we do it, you know, this way, that way. I think on that note, we'll kind of say, hopefully you got something of value out of, of thinking about compliance. There are probably lots of other aspects to compliance that'd be worth talking about. Please uh, make comments, you know, say, hey, why didn't you include this? Or, you know, this is one of my favorite things, or, you know, I hate compliance because, you know, give it uh, to us, lay it on us, if you will. And, and we'll take a look at that. And maybe there's a part two to this particular podcast. 
not every podcast is going to be, you know, fun hoopla and la la la. Uh, this is kind of one of those things. Compliance is maybe not the most exciting or, or sexy topic out there. But if you're a CISO, uh, I, I'm going to bet you have something to do with compliance, unless your particular company is not in that industry. So on that note, I do, I will mention this. We have a podcast coming up and we're going to dive into crypto. Uh, as you probably are aware, crypto has gotten a lot of attention lately. You know, some might say that it's the end of crypto. Um, there's been big, big hacking incidents with crypto. Obviously, uh, the, the different coins have dropped in value. Uh, Bitcoin kind of being the, the big one that we talk about a lot. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of volatility, if you will, around the whole crypto scene. Uh, throw in the NFTs and the non-fungible token side, and it should be a pretty interesting conversation. We are going to have a guest on that one, uh, a friend of mine that uh, is from the Bahamas. And uh, if you don't know this, if you know nothing about crypto, then maybe this doesn't matter. But, but the Bahamas uh, has established itself as kind of a crypto center here in the, in the Western Hemisphere. So we're going to dive in some topics. Maybe you'll leave that podcast buying crypto or, or never touching it again. And uh, yeah, we'll dive into some things there. So um, hopefully you had some value out of this. If you did, please share your friends, uh, post it, whatnot. And then uh, if nothing else, we'll see you here next time. Have a great one. <laughs>